Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Exodus 18, 1 through 8. And we are looking at a couple examples of people who've been in kind of dangerous situations and God has gotten them out one way or another. We're going to start uh, some strange situations, but it's Exodus 18, 1 through 8. It's where we'll begin, and this can be found on page 113 in your pew Bibles. This is shortly after the people have been brought, the Israelites have been brought out of Egypt, out of the slavery there and the ways that God uh, had delivered them through plagues and then uh, through the Red Sea and then even had provided for them uh, in the wilderness when they thought they were going to die of hunger or of thirst. And yet he continued to provide for them. Exodus 18, 1 through 8. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word this morning. God, to really hear it. God, we pray that your word would be uh, more precious to us than gold, that your word would be more valuable to us than all the other words of the world combined. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word this morning that we would come to know you better, that we would come to love and trust you more, and that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue to change us, to transform us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Exodus 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and his people and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, and the other was named Eleazar, Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Turning then to John chapter 8. Verses 54 through 59. This is a shorter uh, reading here than we're used to, but um, can be found on page 1664 in your few Bibles. John 8, 54 through 59. This is when Jesus is in the midst of uh, a disagreement. Some of the folks there, they think he is possessed by a demon for what he's doing. He disagrees. This is starting in verse 54. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. (laughs) You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to um, I want to tell you how one of the one of my favorite movies of all time begins, and this is a movie uh, I hope everybody has seen, just because it's a great movie. This is The Princess Bride. Anybody seen that one? Anybody not seen it and just needs to come over to my house and watch it? Because it's like required viewing. Well, if you're the age I was when it came out. Required viewing. (laughs) Anyway, in uh, this particular movie, the way that it begins is there is a a boy who is sick. He's at home, and it's, you know, snow day kind of thing. and, um, And his grandpa comes over. And it's going to read him a book. And so this is how the whole thing begins. And the, um, the grandson is not real excited about having Grandpa come visit. He's plenty happy just playing his video games. But the Grandpa comes in, and he says, I brought you a special present. The grandson says, what is it? He says, open it up. And he opens it, and he goes, a book? And the grandfather says, that's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father, and today I'm going to read it to you. And the grandson says, has it got any sports in it? And the grandfather, are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. And the grandson replies, doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Now, the book he's going to read him is The Princess Bride, and it goes on from there. But I feel like that grandpa a lot (laughs) when opening up the Word of God to people who say, "Eh, try to stay awake. (laughs) That this is an exciting story from start to finish, and the only reason that that we ever see it as not exciting is because we don't understand it. But when we do understand what it's saying, it's an exciting story, start to finish. And today is one of uh, those passages. We, this summer, we read uh, all through the book of Philippians, which the book of Philippians, you're just reading somebody else's mail. This is Paul when he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to the church in Philippi, and he is just really passionately wanting to communicate to them uh, what they need to know about who they are and what it means to be in relationship with Jesus and uh, so this is the kind of thing he's communicating. And when you understand that context, you're reading that letter and the things that he's saying in there, that's exciting. Well, now we're not even reading that letter. We're reading the book of Acts, which Luke has written, and he's telling at this point in the letter how it is that Paul even got to Rome to be in that prison to then be writing this letter. And so the whole story, like I say, is exciting. And then, of course, when you understand the whole story, that all those little parts go together to tell one much bigger story about God and his love for his people and how he's shown that most clearly in Jesus. It is 
an exciting story, <laughs> start to finish. And uh, this morning, though, the reason I bring that up is the story we're getting ready to read, um, I kind of feel like there needs to be some background music. I did not bring any, if you're wondering. But it's kind of like one of those action movies where you're on the edge of your seat because you're not really sure what's going to happen, and there's danger at every turn, and there's you know, conspiracies and secret plots happening and people uncovering the plots and trying to get around them and, and what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And so you're on the edge of your seat. It's that kind of story. So whatever music you would imagine playing as the movie is scored, you can go ahead and play that in your head as I read this. <laughs> this is um, Acts chapter 23, verses 11 to 35. Make sure you get your music playing in your head. Um, this is after Paul <laughs> had been falsely accused. People start trying to beat him up in front of the temple. Uh, the, they do start beating him up. The uh, Roman guard comes and gets him and pulls him out of there. And then he tries to defend himself before the crowd. That doesn't go well either. And eventually uh, the guard takes him to the Sanhedrin and while he's in between all the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is what we talked about last week, and Paul cries out, oh, it's because of my hope in the resurrection. And they all start fighting with each other about whether or not they believe in the resurrection. Just generally, do people have life after death or not? And they start fighting over that, so much so that the Roman is afraid that they're going to tear Paul apart, and so he has to pull him out for his own safety. That's where we left off last week, and it doesn't calm down. <laughs> Uh, So here we go. This is starting in verse 11, which is where we left off last week. It says, The following night, after all that had taken place, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Okay, let me just pause there for a second. At this point, I know you're on the edge of your seat. You want to know what happens. Hang on. At this point, when they go to the chief priests and the elders and they say, Hey, we have this plot to kill Paul. How should the chief priests and elders respond? (laughs) But we continue. Verse 15, now then, they continue, uh, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Okay, pause. Again, now they're not only saying we have this plan, but we want you to participate with us in our plan. If you, as the Sanhedrin, can say, uh, we need Paul to come back before us again, Don't worry, you won't have to even think of any questions to ask him because we will make sure he's dead before he ever gets to you. Now this is, again, the kind of thing the Sanhedrin should want no part of. Not only should they not want to participate, but they should really get on to the guys who are even bringing this up. No, no, no. This is not what we're about. This is not how we do things. It's not what we do. But instead... um, Something else happens, steps in. This is verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, 
Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and said, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So the, okay, pause again. So the young man, he does what he can do. He's heard about this, so he goes to the guy in charge, and he says, this is what's going on. And the guy sends him away and says, don't tell anybody you told me this. And at this point, he doesn't know. Is the commander actually going to do anything about this? Or is he going to do what seems to be happening where the people in charge don't do what they're supposed to do, but turn a blind eye to the injustice that's going on? And interestingly enough, this Roman actually responds the right way, whereas we have been seeing the people who should be responding the right way not doing that. Uh, This is one of the things that we have seen as we read through uh, the gospel account of Luke recently. We see this happening all over the place. The people who should have responded right respond wrong. When people who should or you expect to respond wrong respond right. It's it's all backwards. And that's what we see again here um, in Acts. And so we have this man who um, he's not Jewish. He's not Christian. He doesn't care about any of the religious issues involved. And yet, he does have a job to protect this man who is a Roman citizen, and he's going to do his job. And that's what he does. So verse uh, 23, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Pause again. I'm just taking you through, and we're just observing things along the way. We're going to come back and talk about what all this means later. So at this point, he is going to send him to Caesarea, and they're going to go overnight to get there. Now, I thought about this. Why in the world are they going, leaving at 9 o'clock at night? Doesn't it seem, and why are they taking so many people? And they're taking so many people, of course, because if there's genuinely a threat on Paul's life, you don't want to get overrun by that. If there are 40 people, so he's got here, you know, 400 and some. We'll have, you know, 470 people. So now we've got, like, uh, you're, we're 10 to 1. If, if all 40 of them come at us, we got them 10 to 1. I think we can still get Paul there safely. That is the mission. That is the job. We're going to get Paul to Caesarea safely. And yet, they're going at night. So if you have the image in your mind, this is where it gets pretty intense and exciting because they... They're setting out at night. They're going through mountains and valleys and where an ambush would be pretty easy. However, again, they're going at night. And I think the reason they're going there, one, is because they need to get there as quick as possible. But two, because the people who are already plotting to kill Paul have made it clear that they're going to do this early the next morning. So they've probably already gotten home and gone to bed and get a good night's rest before their early morning murder. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, got a big day. So anyway, so while they're sleeping, hopefully we can get Paul as far away from here as possible and away from the threat. But just in case they get wind of it and they come after us in the night, we better have plenty of people there. So that's what's going on. And at this point, do we know if it's going to work or not? Are they going to make it to Caesarea or are they going to be captured along the way? The only thing we have to go on, really, was back in verse 11. Do you remember verse 11? That's where we started. Following that, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So let me ask you, you think he's going to make it? I think he's going to make it. Okay, well, we continue. Because the governor does not only provide a plan to get Paul to Caesarea, and he doesn't just provide the, uh, the manpower and, um, and the horses and all that, but he also goes so far as to write a letter to the governor there, so he'll at least have some idea of what's going on when this man arrives. And so he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, the guy writing a letter, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Kind of shading things in his favor there if you read the story earlier. But anyway, (laughs) I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. All right, so there's the letter Felix is going to get. So then, verse 31, So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. Just so you know, in case you don't have that map in your head, that means they took him as far as uh, getting outside of the mountainous areas. And uh, yeah, and and it's about halfway. So they're headed towards from the mountains and surrounding Jerusalem down towards the the sea and the coast of Mediterranean where Caesarea is. Beautiful area, by the way, as an aside. They get about halfway and out of the mountains, so most of the danger is past, so the soldiers come on back, and the cavalry goes on with him. Verse 33, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, I hope you're still on the edge of your seat wanting to know what happens here once Paul gets to Caesarea and the accusers are going to now come and find out or make their accusations and see what Felix is going to decide with this one. But we'll have to wait on that till next week. I know, I know. Unless you have a Bible, in which case you can read ahead. But But what I want to do now is actually circle us back and take a look at this whole passage and say, well, what? <laughs> it's an exciting story, but what do we learn from this? Other than it just being an exciting story. And so I want to point out a couple things from here. One is, uh, as Jesus said, you know, take courage. You know, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That all of this, all of this going on is still under 
God's hand. He's got this. He's got this under control. And as, as out of control and on the edge of our seats as we are and going, I don't know what's going to happen. Paul didn't know what was going to happen either. And yet, what he did know is that God was with him and had a plan for him. And there were going to be a lot of twists and turns along the way and a lot of hardships along the way. But he knew that he was with him and had a plan for him. Here's another thing we learned. Uh, you know the, um, the, <laughs> the phrase, if you see something, say something? You heard that before? You should have heard that before. <laughs> this is something the uh, Department of Homeland Security adopted in 2010, if my research is correct, uh, but had been used before that as well. Uh, but adopted that officially as a slogan as a way to uh, provide measures for uh, countering terrorism. So if you see something, and the idea there is if you see something that is suspicious in line with terrorism, that you should say something to the proper authorities uh, and let them know what is suspicious about that, why it is you're letting them know, so they can check it out. This is what this guy does, this nephew of Paul. He hears something that's going on. He finds out that there's a threat against Paul, and he doesn't just go, boy, I hope they get that figured out. (laughs) Hope nothing happens. But he does something about it. He knows what's going on, and so he does something about it. So he sees something, he says something. Uh, Now, here's the problem what we found with this today, now that we've been through several years of if you see something, say something, is that people have been doing that. And uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, they are not seeing something suspicious and saying something about that, but they're seeing something that stereotypes a group of people and reporting that instead. That's a problem. And uh, what it has done is continued to perpetuate stereotypes, and it has continued to divide people against each other, so it's the us-against-them sort of thing. We, um, we have seen multiple examples this last week of how dangerous and harmful it is when people see uh, those people as those people instead of as either... <laughs> enemies that we're called to love, or, more rightly, neighbors that we're called to love. And that's one of the things we looked at last Wednesday night in our Bible studies. We're going through Luke and how Jesus just keeps on on this topic of the people that are not like you are people that you are still called to love as your neighbor. And if you see them as your enemy, that you're still called to love them. <laughs> that, that We don't get around that, regardless. And so, uh, this guy gets it right. He doesn't say, uh, because these people are part of the Sanhedrin, they're probably up to something. No. Is there's actually something sp- suspicious going on. There was actually credible evidence he has, and so he goes and he takes that to the guy in charge. You see something, say something. But where that takes us is a little different direction. And that is, uh, there's a a song by Andrew Peterson where he, uh, it's called I've Seen Too Much. And the whole idea there is, of that song, is that uh, he has seen too much evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, and especially in the lives of the people that he knows and what God has done in them to change them. And he says, 
I've seen too much. I can't deny it. I've seen too much. There's too much uh, that I have seen to be able to go back on that. And I think that's where we are. Is, uh, yes, we should be, if you see something, say something. But here's what, what I mean by that as I look at this passage. When Jesus says to Paul, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What does it mean to testify? It just means to say what you've seen. What is it that Paul has seen? He's seen the risen Lord Jesus. He has seen the risen Lord Jesus. This is what he's going to be telling people about. This is what he's seen, and this is what he's going to say. And the same is what we have been called to do. If you've seen something, if you have seen the resurrected Jesus, if you have seen evidence of uh, Jesus as the Messiah, if you have seen the way that all of Scripture has pointed to Jesus and the way that he gives new life to people even now, if you've seen something, say something. <laughs> there are people in this world who are in danger. We, like, we have Paul in danger here of the plots that were against him. We are told, Paul tells us later, you know, and Peter tells us as well, we are in danger spiritually in this world. There are forces working against us, and yet we have been given a message, a message to share with people, to let them know of the plots that are against them, to let them know of the way of life, to let them know of the hope of Jesus. So, have you seen something? Say something. Tell people. Tell people the good news about Jesus. And as you have, um, as you have this charge to do so, you can do so like Paul, taking courage, knowing that God is with you, that he has a plan, and that everything is under his control. And that doesn't mean, so then we don't need to do anything. As we see, he uses people. (laughs) But it means we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried. We can move forward confidently, telling people the good news. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.